Hello. Perhaps I should start with a trigger warning. On this programme, you're going to hear two white male centrist liberals discussing radical identity politics from the shared assumption that much of it is problematic and some of it is harmful, not just to people and institutions, but to the progressive project. Now, for some people, this is an inherently reactionary and harmful thing to be doing. Now, I fear there is little I can say or do to change that view. But although I agree with my guest today on almost everything he's written, I'm hoping there are some angles of inquiry we can explore that will engage those who view radical critical theory as sacrosanct, as well as those who think it's so model-headed as to be not even worth discussing. Well, there's only one way to find out. Brought to you by the Forward Institute, you're listening to the show that offers a fresh perspective on how to manage change and lead from the front. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm pleased, delighted in fact, to welcome author, political scientist Yasha Monk, author of The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Yasha, I think you're a bit under the weather, but apart from that, how are you? Apart from that, I'm very well. And it's kind of nice because if I say anything incoherent, I can blame it on not feeling well. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Now, I thought the best thing to do, because it's important for people listening to kind of get the core of your argument, is start near the end of the book. And near the end of the book, there's a summary of what you see as the three core precepts of what you call the identity synthesis and the three alternative liberal positions which you urge us to defend. So why don't we Yasha, start there with with those three core propositions and the alternative liberal perspective? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really striking to me about this political moment is that we've witnessed over the course of the last decades in academia and over the last 10 years or so in a popularized form in much of public discourse, the rise of what I think is a genuinely new ideology. So these new ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation, I think are very different from what constituted much of left-wing thought. Even when I was starting to think about politics and joined the youth movement of the German Social Democratic Party when I was 13 years old, and so on and so forth. And I think part of how to bring out how different this ideology is, is to engage in what philosophers call a rational reconstruction, which is to say an attempt to reboil it down to some of the, the, the core claims that most of its adherents would subscribe to. And I think that there's three such core claims. The first is that to understand the world, we really have to think about core identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. That if you want to understand some big historical event like a political revolution, or you want to understand how we interact today, the main things, the principal prism for how to perceive those questions has to be these identity categories. The second claim, I think, is that more universal values and neutral rules, which have historically animated liberal democracies, or that liberal democracies at least claimed animated them, are really just an attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes. They're just an attempt to fool people into thinking that there's some kind of principles of justice structuring society when the truth of it is, when the reality of it is, 
that they are there to perpetuate the kinds of forms of discrimination along sexual, racial, and other lines that have historically been so influential. And therefore, the upshot, which does seem, I think, to follow relatively neatly if you believe in the first two claims, is the third claim, which is that to make genuine progress, we have to give up on those kind of universal values and neutral rules and make how the state treats all of its citizens and social policy, but also the way that we treat each other in social situations, explicitly depend on the kind of group into which you've been born. Now, I think that there is a way of taking very seriously both the ways in which societies that claim to be animated by universal values failed to live up to them in the past, and to take very seriously some of the injustices that undoubtedly remain in contemporary democracies, including the United Kingdom, without throwing the baby out with a bathwater in quite that way. So I think one way of, of thinking through this is as a response, as a reformulated version of each of these three claims. And that would be to say, first of all, that yes, of course, to understand the world, we have to think about categories of race and gender and sexual orientation that helps to explain part of our social world. But there are other important categories of analysis as well. One of them, as Marxists would remind us, is social class. Others might be religion or nationalism or patriotism or individual choices and actions and preferences and idiosyncrasies. Rather than coming to each situation with a monomaniacal view of what can make sense of it, we need to look at these situations and let them teach us how to interpret them, understanding that there's these different kinds of possible conceptual prisms. The second counterclaim is to say, look, yes, of course, as some of the great thinkers in the American political tradition, the British political tradition, the European political tradition have recognized, many societies did not live up to their universal values. When you look at somebody like Frederick Douglass in the United States, uh, in his most famous speech, What to the Negro is the 4th of July, he says, you all are hypocritical. You're talking about all men being created equal, and yet African-Americans are in chains in this country. Clearly, you're not living up to these values. But he then went on to say, rather than ripping up those principles, we should live up to them. He told his fellow citizens, if you are serious about those values, the way to live up to them is to, in fact, treat us as equals. By what virtue, by the use of which principle are you justified in failing to do so. And so actually the invocation of those universal values has been incredibly powerful in history and has allowed us to make imperfect but very, very significant progress towards a society of equals. And so therefore, if you believe that understanding the world is a little bit more complicated, you have to look at different kinds of categories. And despite the grave injustices of the past, we have actually been able to make significant progress in part by invoking those universal principles the step forward is to continue to do so, rather than throwing all of those norms and practices and values overboard, we should in fact double down on trying to live up to them. Thanks, Asher. That's a kind of brilliant summary of the core argument. So much to get into, but let's start again where the book starts in a sense where why these ideas have emerged, why there has been this rejection of universalism by parts of the left, a kind of resignation about a world that is divided up into 
different identity-based groups who are almost intrinsically in conflict with each other. You give an account of why you think these ideas have arisen to such prominence. Yeah. So I think the first thing to understand is, you know, the lead metaphor of the book, the identity trap, implies when you think about it that there is a lure. Any good trap is going to have something, a piece of cheese to to draw people in. And even well-intentioned, smart people might fall for a trap. So what is the lure here? I mean, I think the lure is the promise that these ideas are the most radical, consistent, uncompromising way to overcome injustices that are undoubtedly real. This is what makes up their allure. The problem, as I argue in the book, is that they can't live up to that promise. That rather than building a society of equals, they set us up for a zero-sum competition between different ethnic and religious groups that can only go wrong. And that, in fact, will as likely end up benefiting historically dominant groups as the marginalized who are supposedly going to benefit from them. And then another way of of thinking about this question is sort of in terms of intellectual history, which is originally when I came to the United Kingdom as a student, I studied in Cambridge, which is what are the intellectual roots of these ideas? And one of the things that I found striking, again, in researching this book is that there really hasn't been a serious academic treatment of that question, even though I think it's evident to many people that the nature of the left has transformed significantly over the course of the last decades. There's barely been any attempt to trace the history of these ideas in a serious way. And the few attempts that there are are mostly by sort of right-wing polemicists who don't have any training in intellectual history and who therefore end up getting the answer to that question wrong. They broadly speaking, argue that this is uh, what we call a form of cultural Marxism. So an ideology where you take Marxist ideas, you take out economic categories like social class, you stuff in these identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation, and voila, you have this new ideology. But I think that's wrong in substantive terms. I just don't think you can take economics out of Marxism and have very much left, just as it would be impossible to take the ball out of football and have very much left in the game. And I show in the book that it's wrong as a historical matter, that actually the roots of this tradition lie first in postmodernism and then in traditions like postcolonialism and critical race theory. So that's the kind of intellectual side of this, but there's also a kind of social context to it. And I want to explore two elements of that. So so one might be, as it were, dissonance. And, and what I mean by that is that we have seen the triumph of egalitarian philosophy in not in terms of economics and social class, but in terms of notions of, of equal status, equal respect. They have triumphed overt racism, overt sexism, even more recently overt homophobia, have become beyond the pale. But yet in that world, still we see huge differences in people's life chances. And so kind of two elements of of this you know if you think about the war on drugs in america you think about the incarceration of black people in america in a sense if this was happening in the 20s or the 30s it would be a terrible thing but it would align with the more general social attitudes of convent of 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 day-to-day racism and a racist theory which existed then but when they happen 
in a society where people ostensibly believe in equality or certain elements of equality. Or another way of looking at this, Yasha, is that I believe, and I don't think many people would disagree with this, even people from the radical left, that, that racism has declined in a country like Britain. You know, when I was at school, racism was absolutely rife. And it was kind of part of the political mainstream. Yet, if you ask black and minority ethnic people in Britain about their experience of day-to-day racism, actually they report higher levels of perceived racism than, than their parents were reporting. So there are different ways, I think, of looking at this question of dissonance and how people feel about that. Is that part of the story here, Yasha? Yes, I, I absolutely do think it's part of a story. And you see at each stage the disappointment in you know the promise of progress driving some of even the most sophisticated defenders of this theory. Um, so Derek Bell, I think, is a key figure here. He is widely acknowledged as a founder of critical race theory. He was a African-American civil rights lawyer, worked with the NAACP in the 1960s to help desegregate many schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South, but came to think of much of that work as a mistake because of genuine disappointments, which are understandable. He observed that you know, sometimes the newly integrated schools were not of very high quality, or the white students ended up fleeing those schools because their parents moved to the suburbs or they sent their kids to newly founded private schools. And so they quickly became overwhelmingly black again. You know, sometimes Derek Bell would argue on behalf of a client who wanted to go to a particular high school, and he won the case, and that genuine uh, the positive consequences because that school would be integrated going forward. But the client on whose behalf Bell was arguing had already graduated high school by the time the court had decided, and so obviously did not benefit from that decision. Now, the problem is that Bell took a very radical inference from that. Because he started to say, first of all, that the kind of critique by segregationist U.S. senators about civil rights law was effectively right. They had always said that these civil rights lawyers are just trying to impose their ideology on integration rather than genuinely arguing for the interests of their clients. And Derek Bell, in an article called Serving Two Masters, basically embraced that point of view, saying, when I was a civil rights lawyer, I wasn't really arguing for the interests of my clients. In many cases, I was trying to impose this ideology. And therefore, he concluded, perhaps it is time to reject what he called the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And he then went very far in that perception that there hadn't been any progress. He claimed that America in the year 2000 was perhaps differently racist, but not less racist than it had been in 1950 or 1850. So I share with you a sense that disappointments about real shortcomings are part of what is driving part of this movement. But I also think it's very important to point out that it is a dangerous intellectual shortcut to therefore see it as the organic voice of the most underprivileged in society or indeed of ethnic minorities in society. In the United States, we had a very interesting study by an organization called More in Common, 
uh, which is active in the United Kingdom as well, which looked at the different tribes of American politics. And we sort of discovered five or six different sort of ideological streams. And the one that they describe as progressive activists, which roughly speaking are the ones that believe in what I call the identity synthesis, are actually one of the most white of these ideological tribes, uh, one of the most affluent of these ideological tribes, and they're the most educated of these ideological tribes. And when you look at the views of non-white Americans, they are much more subtle and complicated. So even on a question like police violence, for example, they do not believe that we should defund the police. They are worried about police violence, but naturally they, as much as any other citizen, uh, recognize the need of having an effective police force and just want to be able to call upon the police when they are the victims of a crime or they are worried about something happening in the neighborhood without having to fear that they might be mistreated. And I think you'd find the same in the United Kingdom as well. This ideology is not the organic outflow of what non-white Britons demand. It is much closer to being the voice of highly educated and predominantly white Britons. Yeah, I don't want to let go of the idea of dissonance entirely though, Yasha, because that doesn't, your, your account, and I recognize it, doesn't fully explain why it is, for example, that black and minority ethnic people in Britain feel that racism is something they experience more than their parents. There is something interesting there. But let, let's just move on to responding to the point you've just made, because as you say, these ideas are ideas which are signed up to not just by those people in a the sense they're purported to be on behalf of the oppressed, as it were, that 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 are the kind of heart of this politics, there are actually ideas which have a huge amount of support amongst people who are themselves part of the oppressing class, as it were. Now, another possible account for this is a, a kind of fatalism, and you you talk about this in the book, a kind of sense that when the left isn't winning mainstream political battles, when Trump is winning in America, when Brexit is winning in the UK, for example. Then in a sense, when you can't, I think the phrase you use is when you can't defeat the president, when you can't take control of government, well, then maybe you can defeat the person along the corridor who you think is reactionary. And that leads to this kind of claustrophobic kind of atmosphere within institutions of people feeling that they're going to be denounced for a lack of kind of ideological rigor. Now, one thought that comes from that suggestion is that things might have got a bit better when Biden came into power because then people on the left had, you know, big issues, big policies, big possibilities to talk about. And so some of this kind of purism would be less relevant. People would be more interested in the pragmatic realities of making the world a better place. Maybe that's a hope we can have given Labour's so far ahead in in Britain. But is that true? Did you think that these ideas have peaked now that there is a progressive leader in America, whatever his limitations? Yeah, so let me tackle sort of both halves of this question. First of all, I do think that the victory of Donald Trump in 2016 in the United States was terrible for many reasons. But one of the stranger ways in which it ended up being bad for the country was that it made it very hard to argue against bad ideas on the left. You know, at first, the energy suscitated on the left by Trump's victory was to try and take him down, right, to have huge protests against him, to have impeachment proceedings, you know, and all of those kinds of things. But when it became gradually more clear 
that there's not going to be a Deus Ex Machina. That he's not going to just disappear from office after two or three months. Most of his protest movement dissipated in a way that protest movements tend to. People returned to their daily lives and became less politically engaged for a few years. But the minority then turned its sense of anger and fear and helplessness inwards. And you sort of invoked the paper of this title by an anthropologist that to me led to a little bit of a light bulb moment when I was researching this book, which is called How Come the Enemy of Humanity Always Turns Out to Sit in the Office Down the Hall. And part of the answer to that question is that that is somebody you have some amount of political power over. So even if you can't do anything to get rid of the actual threat and remove Donald Trump from office, what you can do is to purify your moral community, to expel anybody who somehow is seen as threatening the purity of your moral community. And that's what ended up happening in a lot of left-leaning spaces, whether it's explicitly progressive institutions, activist institutions, organizations, or you know universities and think tanks and, and journalistic outfits that were less explicitly political over the course of 2016 to 2020. I do think that the election of Joe Biden changed the tenor of those discussions a little bit. It was not easy for me to write this book, and I was warned against writing this book by a good number of people when I set out to do so in the very early period of Biden's presidency. But in the end, I think, you know, not everybody has agreed with me and there's been a bunch of very positive mentions of a book or, uh, and reviews of a book, also a few hostile ones that was all to be expected. But we were able to have, I think, a serious conversation around the book in a way that may not have been possible two or three years ago. And I certainly don't feel at any risk of being sort of shunned or canceled or ostracized over it. And I think that is genuinely a change that would not have been the case three or four years ago. At the same time, I do think that many of the practices inspired by these ideas have become deeply institutionalized in American society. In Hollywood, I was just speaking to somebody who was trying to get a movie script made, a prescription on anything that might, in however vague a way, be described as cultural appropriation is as strong as it has ever been, as it is, I think, in publishing. The kinds of practices that I describe in the book, like teachers coming to classrooms when kids are eight or seven or six years old and splitting them up into different racial groups in order to encourage them, as one influential organization puts it, to think of themselves as racial beings is going as strongly as it ever did. And what I observe among the students that I teach, who are you know between 18 and 21, 22 years of age for the most part, is that they're very open to having serious conversations about these subjects. They're not, by and large, fanatical believers in the identity synthesis. But these are the ideas uh, that are in the water everywhere for them. The idea that free speech is something to be worried about is what they've been taught in high school and middle school and possibly earlier. The idea that the way to seek recognition in society is by identifying themselves, by defining themselves by the particular intersection of identities at which they stand is something that is completely part of a cultural landscape 
into which they have been socialized. And so I would say that some of the worst excesses of this ideology have been rolled back. We now have more space, hopefully, to have serious conversations about it. But in many ways, its influence remains as strong as it was, certainly when you look at the sort of less overtly absurd manifestations of it. Yes, and I, I wonder whether part of this story, and you, you do talk about this in, in the book to an extent, is a problem about the use of academic ideas as the basis for practical policy. Because you you start one of the chapters towards the back of the book by saying, and it's, you know, I kind of sat up when I read it, you wrote, the identity thesis has a rich intellectual history. And I wonder whether, you know, I read critical theory, the Frankfurt School, you know, when I was at university, came across postmodernism. I'm a bit old for postmodernism to be as fashionable when I was at university. But now I think these are important ideas. I think that students should be encouraged to look at the world through the prism of some of these ideas, to think about the idea that you can't really understand a society or understand what a society says about itself without asking who's in power that it is worth questioning almost every narrative and asking, well, who gains from this narrative? Who loses from this narrative? To be questioning even more questioning than we tend to be about things like scientific narratives. I think this is all good stuff. But I think the problem is that when you take those ideas and you try to apply them in practical situations, well, that's where the problems often start. I mean, I remember being in an organisation and we undertook an audit of our equality, diversity, inclusion. I think it's an important thing to do. I think organizations ought to audit themselves and see how they're doing, whether they're living up to their values. But I was rather taken aback by the fact that the consultancy that actually won the work in the end, I, I was consulted about to make the final decision, advertised the fact that they were strong adherents to critical theory. You know, this critical race theory, critical feminist theory, critical gender theory, critical fat theory, I think they said. There's a long list of, of elements of critical theory. And what I said to them when I spoke to them was, well, hold on, you're doing an audit of an organisation which is supposed to be, as it were, an objective piece of research to tell us how well we're doing in terms of equality and diversity and inclusion, because that's very important. But you're doing that from a starting point which says that any institution in our current society is inherently riven with racism and sexism and homophobia. That, that is inevitable. So I found it very difficult to kind of deal with, really. So there's other elements that I want to explore in a moment, Yesha, but to, to what extent is this, and, and, and you might, by the way, sorry to such a long question, but in a way you might say it's a little bit similar to the way in which free market fundamentalism, the ideas of homo economicus, the idea of perfect markets, which permeated the establishment of economists in academia. And then those ideas were then taken up by policy people as ways of running public services in ways which are often pretty disastrous. So is part of this about how we take academic ideas and apply them in the real world? Well, I think it's partially about how we take academic ideas and apply them in the real world. But a lot of it, I think, is about the particular set of ideas that we're talking about here. And by the way, there's a kind of strange conceptual confusion here where there's a kind of critical theory in the sense of a Frankfurt School, which actually really has quite little to do with critical race theory. They share a name, 
but not very much else. Um, you know, the Frankfurt School really is in a kind of Marxist tradition. And as I show in the intellectual history I develop, the ideas that are so influential today really are not particularly Marxist. So critical race theory has more to do with postmodernism and postcolonialism than it does with the critical theory of, of a Frankfurt School. And I think part of what I do worry about with those traditions, not just in the way they're applied, but in the way that they develop, is that they get rid of the skepticism of postmodernism relatively early on. So one of the things that I find appealing about Michel Foucault, even as I disagree with him on many things, is his radical skepticism of how societies portray themselves and therefore whether we're able to make progress towards a better society. When he talks about political discourses, he's very aware of a way in which our conversation might exercise power in various ways by constituting certain concepts and ideas. But he also, in a famous exchange with Noam Chomsky, is very skeptical about the idea that we might be sure how to make a better world. Because every new form of discourse will itself quite quickly become oppressive. And so his is not really a philosophy of liberation. I don't know that he can envisage what liberation might look like. Now, in the next steps in the origin of these ideas, a series of thinkers understandably want to repoliticize Foucault. They are very attracted to the sort of solvent qualities of Foucault's philosophy, the way in which it allows you to attack ideologies and existing ideas and to demonstrate that actually things aren't as they appear. But they then want to press that critique into the service of a much more straightforwardly, I guess you might say, positivist political vision. So rather than critiquing all discourses, you're trying to change discourses in order to empower the powerless and fight the power of those who have historically benefited from those discourses. And rather than being skeptical, for example, of identity categories, as Foucault was, who in our terminology was a homosexual, a gay man who had sex with men, but who didn't like that label because he thought it overly constrained the variety of sexual experiences, we're going to re-embrace identity categories. So Gayatri Spivak, the literary scholar, says, look, you know, Foucault seems to think that intellectuals don't have an obligation to speak on behalf of workers, for example, but they can speak for themselves. That might be true of white workers in Paris who have certain kinds of resources and education and so on. It's not true of a subaltern of the most oppressed in what she called the third world and places like the streets of Calcutta. And so in order to be able to speak on behalf of those voiceless people, we should embrace what she called a strategic essentialism, a notion of identity in which, even as you recognize it philosophically speaking, essentialist accounts of identity are wrong, you basically re-embrace those essentialist accounts for the purposes of politics. And so today, if you go to an activist meeting, people might say race is, of course, a social construct, which I broadly agree with, but then go on very quickly to say, we should listen to what BIPOC people demand, or we must foreground you know, the lived experience of brown and black people and so on. And so you very quickly get back to this kind of essentialist notion of identity. And so I guess what I would say is that a lot of where these ideas go wrong is in how they're inspired by the skepticism of Foucault's postmodernism, 
but very quickly a turn into what the postmodernists might have called a grand narrative of their own. Very quickly they turn into their own sort of grand narrative of who's right and who's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And you end up with a worldview in which you can look out at the world and see everything through the prism of the same basic distinctions. Who's white and who's a person of color, who's oppressed and who's an oppressor. And that tells you everything you need to know about a kind of situation. So I do think that the roots of those oversimplifications lie in some ways in its historical roots, even if the thinkers who formulated those ideas were themselves rather more subtle and in many cases came to rue their influence. So Spivak, for example, complained that strategic essentialism just ended up being what she called the union ticket for a more vulgar form of essentialism. And in reference to the Chaiwalas who sell tea in the streets of India, she made fun of the humorlessness of the identity wallas at American universities. I think that's really interesting, Yesha, because ideas are used for different purposes and ideas are used for purely intellectual purposes, as it were. They're the process of seeking to discover the truth about the world they're used for practical purposes to solve practical problems, but they're also used as political tools, as political tactics. And I think that one of the things that I have consistently found most difficult about some articulations of what you call the identity thesis is that its political cleverness lies in its intellectual bankruptcy in the sense that what is politically clever about it is to adopt a position which says if you don't agree with me, that proves that you are part of the problem. And that is a very powerful kind of political position because it makes people feel, well, if I you know, read this book that wants to define society in these ways, and if I don't agree with it, then I'm confirming the thesis, which is that I must myself be guilty of the crimes of oppression which this book describes. Now, that's politically clever, and it's one of the reasons why I think these ideas have been quite powerful, because they make people feel they've got to choose between accepting the ideas or being complacent about their own role in, in oppression. Intellectually, I think it's completely hopeless, and that's why I found those arguments very difficult in the same way as I find kind of Trotskyism difficult, because it has... You don't mention Karl Popper in your book, but in a sense... You know, that kind of popper problem he has with Freud, with Marx, which is these are theories which can never be wrong. They can be articulated in a way which means that they are it's impossible to invalidate them. So it's quite interesting, it seems to me, that that something which makes ideas, in my view, intellectually very problematic can also make them quite quite politically powerful. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. And once you come to the popular form that these ideas take, in particular in the form of Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, two of the best-selling authors of 2020, that is really evident. You know, one thing that strikes me about Kendi's work, as in other ways, you know, some of the habits of mind that I once associated with the right have come to be imported by the progressive left. When I first came to the United States, all of my friends and acquaintances were up in arms about George W. Bush's line, but you're either with us or you're against us, or you're either with us or you're, 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 you're with the terrorists. And people, uh, you know, in some ways understandably, thought that that was overly simple and, and Manichaean. And along comes Ibram X. Kendi and says, well, there's only two 
categories of things in the world. There's racists and there's anti-racists. There's racist things and objects and policies and anti-racist things and objects and policies. There's no such thing as being not racist. And so that had a incredible power of pressurizing people into accepting his point of view because they felt, well, I clearly don't want to be racist. And unless I agree with Candy's reading of what I have to do, that's what I inadvertently end up being. And in the same way Robin D'Angelo claims that, you know, in White Fragility, that anybody who disagrees with her vision of the world is just driven by the white fragility, right? It's just driven by the unwillingness to acknowledge racism and the, the role they play part in it. So this is, you know, anti-Poparian in the most extreme form, right? By anybody who disagrees with me can't be legitimate or can't have a serious point to make. Uh, by definition, if you disagree with me, that is proof of your white fragility and therefore proof that you know, you're just trying to cling on to your white privilege and so on and so forth. And so these two ideas together, I do think, had had a way of building up an unfalsifiable political ideology that proved to be powerful in certain ways, but also powerless in others, which is to say that it, it had a sort of incredible effect on people who were highly motivated by seeing themselves as being on the side of social justice but it also repelled a lot of other people who might otherwise have been sympathetic to the cause. And I think the right response to that is to reclaim some of those terms. I certainly think of myself as an anti-racist. I abhor racism and think it is an obvious obligation of all of us to fight against it. But I want to fight against racism on the basis of what actually historically has been not just the most successful political tradition of fighting against racism, but as it happens within the African-American community, until this moment, also the mainstream tradition of how to fight against racism. And that is the demand for us to live up to our universal values that was inspired, as I mentioned earlier, by people from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King and, in certain ways, Barack Obama. Right. So I think that the true way to be an anti-racist is to fight for genuine equal treatment for members of uh, different groups and to aspire to a society in which race isn't perhaps abolished but comes to matter less than it does today because it structures our opportunities and our expectations and our perception of each other much less than it does now. So, Yasha, we're drawing to a close, but just a couple of last brief questions. So... The first is, obviously, the right, the political right, sees these ideas and the fact that, as you've pointed out, not only are they, generally speaking, not ideas that the population as a whole tends to support, but they're not even ideas that are supported by those people who are supposed to, as it were, be be the sufferers of racism and sexism and homophobia, which, you know, so, so that the oppressed group on whose behalf these ideas are developed don't, generally speaking, agree with them. And of course, the right has seized on to that. And both in America and Britain, the right sees the so-called culture wars as one of their strengths in the kind of political battle around. And, it, and it's interesting that very often that that some of the most powerful spokespeople on the right are themselves, you know, people of black and minority ethnic people or women or whatever, who, who say, well, look, these ideas have no resonance with me and with my experience and with my 
my values. And this has allowed the right also to conflate some of these ideas, which, as I say, I think of intellectual, intellectually interesting, but of limited practical value with much more mainstream stuff. You know, my in Britain, a couple of weeks ago, the former Secretary of State for Health wrote to all health leaders and said they must no longer appoint anybody to work on equality, diversity and inclusion, even though we have an incredibly diverse workforce, even though we have hundreds of people arriving in our health service from other cultures and actually having good policies which make people f- have a sense of inclusion and also recognizing that we've had real problems in the health service about racism. So, but but he conflated, Anis, as, in a sense, the kind of public reaction against some of these ideas with mainstream and important practice on equality and inclusion. So where do you see this rolling out now, given that the right has really got its teeth into this stuff? Well, I think the question is how we actually advance better practices. And I do think that there's been a lot of magical thinking on parts of the left that somehow they will be able to institute their preferences without some kind of broader backlash, right? I mean, looking at American universities, for example, you've had very obvious limits on free speech instituted by American universities in the last 10 years. One example that really strikes me is that on the backside of a student or faculty ID card at New York University, you have free telephone numbers, the first of which you call in case of a medical emergency, the second of which you call in case of a public safety emergency, like a terrorist attack, I suppose, and the third of which you call to an anonymous hotline in case you've suffered a microaggression, and then there's going to be a team that investigates this. That obviously has a chilling effect on what people can say on campus, and it encourages people to assume that any stray remark by a fellow student must be directed against them in a terrible way and must be traumatic and so on, rather than encouraging people to talk it out and try to get along. Then you see the rise of people like Ron DeSantis in Florida, the Republican governor, who say, well, look, if at most universities in the United States, the freedom to speak for conservatives is really limited, we are going to use the power we have over public universities in Florida to restrict what people on the left can say. And the course that I teach, for example, about some of these subjects in which we have weeks on questions like free speech and cultural appropriation and other things, and in which, of course, I assign readings from both sides because I don't see my role in the classroom as being to propagandize or to ensure that all the students think, as I do at the end of a term, which I wouldn't be able to deliver on anyway, I wouldn't be able to teach in a public university in Florida for that reason. But I think there can be a a tendency to both dig your heels in when there is then damaging attacks from the right, or to say, well, let's not talk about any of the ways in which our own institutions and practices have gone wrong, because that only validates what people on the right say. If we don't talk about it, perhaps people won't notice it. And I think that's clever by half. People realize and notice when things have gotten wrong. And if there's then a kind of omata among the elites or among newspapers and, and media outlets or not talking about those kind of shortcomings, that only makes people mistrust those institutions more. So look, if you want to make sure that those efforts at inclusion are actually respected going forward, you need to make sure that you set them up along what's sometimes called a common humanity framework, rather than coming in and saying the fundamental division in society is between whites and people of color, and 
even well-intentioned things you say are probably going to be deeply traumatic microaggressions and the expectation is that you're not going to get along because everybody is secretly a racist and in fact if you disclaim being a racist as a white person that's only proof that you are a racist and therefore as training for the Coca-Cola company said it you know if you're white what you should do is to try to be less white whatever that means you should have trainings in which you actually facilitate mutual understanding to say, look, there's going to be cultural differences between us. Sometimes perhaps there's going to be some degree of language barrier. Here's how you facilitate positive and joyous way of recognizing that those differences can be valuable, but also we share common humanity and we're going to be employees of the same NHS trust or of students of the same university. And the expectation is that we'll get along, but we'll be able to take joy in each other. And I think if, if that's the way in which most of his trainings were run, the backlash against him would be a lot less severe. Um, and I think that's the model for how to think about these topics more broadly. The reason why I care about all of this is that, for example, uh, big institutions in society are currently losing the trust of majorities of people. In the United States, a majority of Americans now have deep distrust for higher education institutions. I care about that not because I dislike the universities at which I did my PhD or at which I teach, but because I want them to thrive and to succeed. And we're not going to be able to do that if most people deeply distrust. Thanks, Yasha. I mean, I, I would just say in passing that I, your answer really interests me because well, all your answers interest me, but you, you sort of started off in a sense running down the idea of microaggressions, but actually and then talking about the importance of discourse. And actually, I think the notion of microaggressions that can be quite useful as a way of opening up conversations about how people make each other feel. And I I agree with you that I think treating it as something that is clear cut and uh, the need, needs a kind of emergency response seems a bit odd. That goes back to my idea about my thoughts about the kind of practicality of some of these ideas. But I think I think microaggressions as a way of understanding the ways in which we can sometimes hurt each other inadvertently and that we can learn from that is, I've seen very useful conversations on, on that basis. But look, final question, Yasha, final question. Is it complacent to take a kind of dialectical view of this? When I was at university in the early 80s, this was around the kind of emergence of second wave feminism and really radical feminism was very strong when I was on campus. And, and it was... I'm a man and, and people have no sympathy for me, but it was quite, it was kind of quite daunting, really. And one part of it included an incredible hostility towards liberal feminists. I mean, there was a kind of sense in which liberal feminists were worse. I remember actually reading a pamphlet that was written by one of the you know, radical feminists at that time saying that liberal feminists were worse than sexist men, which is typical of, of some of the zealotry that you describe in your book. But yet... Looking back, that kind of eruption of, of second wave feminism, including some of its more extreme qualities, did make a difference. It did raise people's awareness. It did lead to positive things happening, positive outcomes, new policy ideas that really have changed the world, more for middle class women than for poorer women so far. But nevertheless, they have made a real difference. Is it complacent to adopt a kind of dialectical view, which is that we will at some point look back on some of these more radical ideas, recognise that they, in the end, didn't have much practical value, but actually, in some ways, they did lead us to look again at the dissonance between the values which liberals assert and the reality of people's experiences. Let me say two things about that. The first thing is that all sort of left radical movements 
had lots of bad things about them that frankly were weeded out because of resistance against them. In this school that I attended in Germany, there were students, this is before my time, of course, who walked down the mainstream of Munich in 1968, shouting, ho, 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 Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Lenin. So lots of the ideas of the 60s revolutionaries were very, very bad. As Danny Cohn-Bendit, the leader of May 68 in Paris, told me when I interviewed him a number of years ago, you know, thank God we won on some things in the cultural realm, and thank God we lost on lots of other things, particularly in the political realm, right? So I don't think you can look at movements in the past and say, well, perhaps we should be complacent about it, because it's only because there was resistance against some of the bad ideas that those didn't come to predominate. The other thing I'll say is that I don't think this novel ideology that I describe in the identity trap is a matter of going too far in the right direction. And that's, I think, important to realize. I think it is systematically going in the wrong direction. When you're encouraging, for example, school students to define themselves as racial beings, to think that the most important thing about them is the kind of racial group into which they were born, I don't think that this is 19, 20-year-olds going a little bit too far in what they believe, as undoubtedly I did when I was 19 or 20, but you know, fundamentally pulling us in the right direction. I think the rejection of universalism, which is at the heart of this tradition, is taking us away from the kind of political vocabulary and repertoire we need to build a better society. And it's very important that we return to the political vocabulary and repertoire that has historically allowed us to make progress. And that is one that certainly calls out injustices that do persist in our society. But perhaps to some extent organize victims of those injustices based on their identity. But that demand a society in which we genuinely treat each other as equals, a society in which the group into which we are born comes to be less rather than more decisive for how we see and treat each other and how the state treats all of us. Yasha, thank you so much for joining us on Forward Vision. Thank you very much. As my conversation with Yasha suggests, I find some of the excesses of radical identity politics difficult to handle. But perhaps unlike Yasha, I still believe there may come a time when we look back and see these ideas as part of a kind of intellectual dialectic, which might ultimately advance progressivism and contribute to social justice. But whether my hopes prove well-founded depends a lot on the quality of the conversation we now have across the divides that separate us. And even though some will disagree with his conclusions, I believe strongly that Yasha Monk's book, The Identity Trap, is a good starting point for that conversation. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.